Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Whether we like it or not, Twitter has become a crucial part of our public sphere now. That's one reason that Elon Musk may end up buying the social media platform and tuning it to his liking. On a day when the country is mourning yet another mass shooting of children, we're going to reconsider digital communities and the kind of spaces that we want to have online. So for the next hour... We're going to talk about your visions for what we optimistically called social media, examine the role Twitter does or does not play in American life, and envision what a better public sphere online would look like. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Before we get started on the rest of the show, we want to acknowledge the elementary school shooting in Texas yesterday, which left at least 19 students and two teachers dead, and the pain, anguish, and anger that many of us are feeling. For many, it was Warriors coach and longtime anti-gun violence advocate Steve Kerr who captured the sentiment of this moment, the latest in so many shootings in this country. Here is Steve Kerr yesterday at his pregame press conference before the true death toll was even known. I'm not going to talk about basketball. Nothing's uh, happened with our team in the last six hours. We're going to start the same way tonight. Um, Any basketball questions uh, don't matter. Um, Since we left shoot-around, 14 children were killed 400 miles from here. And And a teacher. And in the last 10 days, we've had elderly black people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo. We've had Asian churchgoers killed in Southern California. And now we have children murdered at school. When are we going to do something? I'm tired. I'm, I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to, to the Devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the, excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm tired of the moments of silence. Enough. There's 50 senators right now who refuse to vote on H.R. 8, which is a background check rule that the House passed a couple years ago. It's been sitting there for two years. And there's a reason they won't vote on it, to hold on to power. So I ask you, Mitch McConnell, I ask all of you senators who refuse to do anything about the violence and school shootings and supermarket shootings, I ask you, 
Are you going to put your own desire for power ahead of the lives of our children and our elderly and our churchgoers? Because that's what it looks like. It's what we do every week. So I'm fed up. I've had enough. We're going to play the game tonight. But I want every person here, every person listening to this, to think about your own child or grandchild or mother or father or sister or brother. How would you feel if this happened to you today? We can't get numb to this. We can't sit here and just read about it and go, well, let's have a moment of silence. Yeah, go Dubs, you know. Come on, Mavs, let's go. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go play a basketball game. And, the, and 50 senators in Washington are going to hold us hostage. Do you realize that 90% of Americans, regardless of political party, want background check, universal background check? 90% of us, we are being held hostage by 50 senators in Washington who refuse to even put it to a vote, despite what we, the American people, want. They won't vote on it because they want to hold on to their own power. It's pathetic. I've had enough. That was Warriors coach Steve Kerr, whose father was gunned down when he was 18. During moments like this, I find myself wanting a real national discourse, a place where people are talking seriously and earnestly about our country's problems, supporting each other, finding solutions. I want something like Twitter, but in reality, an actual practice, when you open Twitter on a day like yesterday or today, it's usually dystopian, alienating, depressing. That's both because it reflects the very worst of the shooting's details and all the other dynamics of social media. People dunking on each other, getting into incomprehensible squabbles, turning everything towards their hobby horses. I feel targeted by exactly the tweets most likely to make me angry. Years ago, there was real optimism about people gathering online, learning about each other, debating issues, coming to new understandings. I probably don't have to tell you, but that optimism has been drowned out. Instead of utopia, we got the uneven landscape we have today where new and interesting voices have an easier time finding an audience or organizing a movement, but so do new and terrible voices. And the roiling center of that digital public sphere has somehow ended up as Twitter, which sits atop the rest of media like an attention-gobbling amoeba. So where do we go from here? What would a healthy online commons look like? That's the question of our hour on this difficult day. We're joined by Dexter Thomas, scholars, postdoc at Princeton, also journalist, documentary filmmaker at Vice News Tonight. Thanks for joining us, Dexter. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. We're also joined by Sarita Shanebeck, an associate professor at the School of Information at the University of Michigan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we're also joined by Ethan Zuckerman, associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a director of the UMass Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure, which is really focused on reimagining the Internet as a tool for civic engagement. Ethan, I'm going to start with you. you know, so much in this country feels stuck. We can't pass important legislation to protect people and make the country run right at a national level. And obviously a big reason for that is the structure of our democracy, the Senate, et cetera. But Ethan, what role do you think 
the information environment that we're in, most especially these social platforms, plays in that stuckness. Well, Alexis, first of all, um, thanks for starting us off with uh, those words from Steve Kerr. I think um, any conversation we have today has to wrestle uh, with the ways in which American civic life seems badly broken. Um, it's pretty clear that our public sphere is part of the problem. We have our governmental systems, our legislative, judicial, executive branches surrounded by the media environment in which they live. And over the last 20 years, that media environment, that public sphere has moved from a broadcast space into a highly participatory space. We still have powerful broadcast entities out there, whether it's public radio, whether it's Fox News, but we also have a much greater channel for individuals to raise their voice. Sometimes this is really good. One of the big flaws of the broadcast era of media was that it was not very representative of who we were as a people. Uh, you heard a lot from straight white men. You didn't hear a lot from people of color, from women, from queer people. The downside is that we've lost a lot of that filtering function. And people who are effective in reaching audiences by being angry, by being outraged, by playing on emotion – are able to reach very large audiences in these days where Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and others are such powerful inputs into the media. We are suffering from a moment of information disorder, a moment of extreme change, and we haven't quite figured out uh, how to make this new public space function as part of our democracy. Mm. Sarita, you know, just thinking about that Steve Kerr press conference, uh, I saw it on Twitter. Lots of other people saw it on Twitter. 25 million people have watched it. Is that an example of Twitter functioning as an effective public space or or not? That's a great question. I think it's a, maybe the fourth time I've watched it, also mostly on Twitter until now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a great example of people connecting emotionally um, in it not necessarily because people are Warriors fans, but because they are parents and members of society. And um, as everyone can relate to the way he was, he was talking about that. And he also had a clear call to action, which is he was angry. And there's you know, a set of people, um, senators that he was angry at. And so I think that was also meaningful that probably people wanted to hear not just the thoughts and prayers as we're seeing, or just the sadness and anger that people feel, but also a, what do we do now? And I think he was really effective in having a, a direction, of a set of people to look at. Dexter uh, Thomas, you know, you've covered Twitter as a journalist, also a longtime user, like many of the rest of us. Are we asking too much of Twitter or really any commercial social platform to, to make it be this public sphere that we might want? Absolutely. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I think, I think that ship has has long uh, since sailed. Um, which is to say that I I think there is a desire for you know as as we've said here for it to be the this public sphere where we can all learn and grow, and it's Twitter is is not that anymore. And um, you know it's changed beyond I think what the founders of it envisioned it, uh, but it's clearly not that now. And is that just because you think the dynamics itself of 
Twitter, like the way that quote tweeting works, the way that like the, like its actual you know embodiment as a product make it insuitable for the purpose we're trying to kind of use the way we're trying to use it. Yeah, or well, you, you, there, there's a big assumption there. The way we're trying to use it, right? Perhaps point. the way that you and I would like to use it um, <laughs> is not the way that other people are using it. And um, there's there's something that when I when I look at Twitter now, there's something uh, that it reminds me of a lot. And anybody who who plays a lot of video games will immediately know what I'm talking about, uh, which is the meta or the meta game, right? So what what a meta game is in in competitive video gaming, right? Esports is the the game within the game if you want to control the game there, there's you have to understand this part of it so for example easy example uh tic-tac-toe mm -hmm. yes tic-tac-toe seems like a very balanced game but it's actually not if you go first and you go in the middle you're probably going to win the game a lot of games when they first come out they're essentially like this which is you know the game will get released you realize oh if i stand in the corner and just throw fireballs <laughs> i'm really really likely to win it's not fun for the gamers. It's not fun for the, especially the person that you're beating, but it's the way to win. So let's say, what am I talking about? Okay, let's take that to Twitter. People have realized that at first it seemed like the way to quote unquote win Twitter, which again is to, you know, get more likes, get more follows, get more retweets, uh, you know, have people think you're interesting, would be to, I don't know, be famous, be attractive, be smart, be funny. It turns out actually that the metagame of Twitter is to make people enraged. And people have figured this out. Now it's not fun. And um, it's actually quite damaging, I think, for a lot of parts of society. But people have realized that actually, if you say things that even if you don't think they're true, as long as it makes people mad, you'll get engagement. You'll get retweets, you, some of them angry. But if you don't mind that, as long as you're okay with just the numbers going up, again, people have realized that yeah. the meta of Twitter is simply to make people mad. And that gets you the attention that you want. It kind we're, of sucks, but that's what we are. We're talking about reimagining the online public square with Dexter Thomas of Vice News Tonight, Sarita Shanebeck, Associate Professor at the University of Michigan, and Ethan Zuckerman, Associate Professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and Director of the UMass Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about reimagining the online public square with Dexter Thomas of Vice News Tonight, Sarita Shanebeck, an associate professor at the University of Michigan in their School of Information, and Ethan Zuckerman, who's the director of the UMass Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure. We also want to hear from you. What do we want the public sphere to look like 
online. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're KQED Forum. Or you can email, email always works, to forum at kqed.org. We also want to bring in um, a, a, a another guest. Uh, Daryl Owens is a policy and data analyst for California Yimby, co-executive of the housing nonprofit East Bay for Everyone and commissioner on the Berkeley Housing Advisory Commission. Welcome to the show, Daryl. Hi, great to be here. So, Daryl, my question for you is you're a very active participant in what people call housing Twitter in the Bay Area. There's a, a real, you know, hundreds of people participating, talking about housing on you know, different, um, with different positions and from different places. And I want to just ask you a really simple question. Do you think housing Twitter actually affects housing, like the housing that gets built or, or funded or, or the way housing is managed in the Bay? Um, I mean, yeah, yes and no. Uh, without housing Twitter, it's kind of hard to believe that the big pro-housing movement that has occurred in the Bay Area in the last couple of years would have happened. Um, housing Twitter is very appealing to young people and young people are the people leading that movement. So without a doubt, social media is a heavy contributor to the major policies that have been passed uh, in favor of building more housing. Um, so I would say yes, but I, w- I wouldn't put too much stock into it. I mean, it's a lot of white noise sometimes. and It's a lot of kids just making funny maps. I mean, my other question is, we we know that these online communities like a housing Twitter they do map to the real world, like you're saying. You know, they have there are impact people who are in city governments and other things are also on housing Twitter, but it doesn't map perfectly, right? So, how do you think housing Twitter has warped the way that we talk about housing in the Bay Area? Oftentimes, I find that a lot of opinions of politicians and stuff uh, come from housing Twitter. <laughs> in my experience, like. You know, I, I think that a lot of the direct conversations we have with politicians uh, are oftentimes on Twitter. You'll you'll be really surprised how many local electeds are like awake at 1 a.m. in the morning arguing about how housing works um, in the Bay Area on housing Twitter and arguing with random people from all over the country. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there absolutely is like it does map onto reality a lot of the time. But I think housing Twitter is also pretty segmented as well, as is all social media discourse, where there's sort of the serious people who are doing their serious conversations at a high level. And then there's sort of the low level noise and fights and viciousness uh, that is common with every social media discourse. So before we let go, do you think that housing Twitter is actually a good part of our public sphere here as a, in our local politics? Actually, I think it's really good. Um, it has enabled a lot of people to engage in local politics, which they've never really done before. I mean, a lot of people don't even know who their city council member is. Um, maybe slightly more know who their mayor is. And housing Twitter is very appealing to young people, but also people of all ages, um, and engaging in the biggest issues in the Bay Area without having to go to a city council meeting at you know 8, 8 p.m. at night. So I think it's ultimately a positive. Yeah. Thanks so much. That was Daryl Owens, policy and data analyst for California Yimby, co-executive of the housing nonprofit East Bay for Everyone and commissioner on the Berkeley Housing Advisory Commission. Thanks for joining us, Daryl. No problem. Um, Ethan Zuckerman, you know, you heard Daryl describing housing Twitter. We wanted this kind of specific example um, to ground into. Like, what do you hear and what he's saying about how housing Twitter works and its effectiveness as civic infrastructure? 
So I think it's a great example of the sorts of conversations that are not showing up for the most part within mainstream media. Many of us are otherwise unaware of. And it's a good reminder of why we actually need thriving public spheres. We need a space where people can get together and talk about issues like housing, which of course is so critically important within the Bay Area. And generally speaking, the formal mechanisms for those conversations don't work for a lot of people. It's a very small minority of people who are able to take that time out of their day and go to the official commission meetings. The trick with it is that we're having these conversations in a space where, as Dexter explained, the rules of the game are different depending on what sort of conversation you want to have. If you are playing the metagame of Twitter and your goal is to get as many likes as possible and you want to be as outrageous as possible, that's a very different conversation than digging into the essence of housing policy. And so the problem that we have is we have this single corporate controlled space and we're trying to do dozens of different things with it. It also turns out that some of those things that we're trying to do with it are better for Twitter's bottom line than the uses that we might want. That conversation about housing policy might not be getting a huge amount of attention. It's probably not selling a ton of ads. Someone dunking on each other and trying to piss people off is possibly going to bring a great deal more attention to Twitter. So the conversation matters, but so does the business model that it's happening within. And Twitter has this problem of having a business model aligned with a particular type of conversation. Mm, that's a good point. We're talking about reimagining the online public square. And we want to bring in uh, another guest uh, call April Rain. She is the creator of Oscar So White and an inclusion and representation consultant. Welcome, April. Thank you for having me. So, April, I thought maybe you could just tell us the story. How did Oscar So White get going? We kind of use it as a, a bit of a case study to understand uh, how this all works. Sure. In January of 2015, I was still a practicing attorney, and my only nexus to the entertainment world was that I was a huge lover of films and TV. Uh, that particular morning, I was getting ready for work and watching the Oscar nominations announced on one of the morning television shows. And it struck me that category after category, there were no people of color nominated for any of the acting slots. So 20 slots, no people of color uh, in January of 2015. And so I picked up my phone and tweeted, Oscars so white, they asked to touch my hair. And that was it. I went on to work. And once I uh, got back on Twitter, around I mean, it's a good line. It's a good line. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's an international line at this point. Uh, and, and, and once I uh, got back on Twitter around lunchtime, the hashtag based on that one tweet was trending around the world. Mm. And what'd you do at that point? Well, I had to decide whether uh, I wanted this to be a thing. Uh, you know, this is not my first viral hashtag and obviously wouldn't be my last. Uh, the most recent one was She Will Rise, which was about the nomination and confirmation of the first Black woman to the Supreme Court. So um, I pivoted the conversation from the snarky retweets uh, and po posts that we were getting initially to a much more substantive conversation about the lack of inclusion representation of all marginalized communities, not only within the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, the folks who run the Oscars, but throughout entertainment, both TV, film, 
and stage. And we saw a year later when Oscar So White trended again, because once again, there were no people of color nominated for any of the acting categories, that the Academy started to make significant or what they thought was significant strides toward um, balancing out their membership and actually committing to doubling the number of people of color and doubling the number of women within their membership ranks by 2020. April, uh, when you make these interventions and they're so strategic and smart and also funny and one, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you're very good at this and why this works. What role do you think the platform itself plays? Like, how do you think about it's it as kind of a, a space that you're trying to move something into or move a set of ideas into? Sure, it's a great question. And, and I know that people are a bit down on Twitter today, but the work that I've been able to do would not happen on any other platform, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. of the fact that Twitter is a public square. And in fact, it is what you make of it. Um, we know that people are consistently harassed throughout the platform, especially visible um, Black women and women of color like myself. At the same time, uh, if I had put that hashtag or something on Instagram, Instagram Instagram is a visual medium. It would not have worked there. Um, On Facebook, you can only basically, in my mind, have one conversation on Facebook at a time, whereas on Twitter, I can have multiple conversations with multiple people around the world at the same time. So Twitter is the only place that that hashtag would have had the impact that it did. Last thing before we let you go, are there things you would change about the way that Twitter works that would be better for you? Sure. Uh, you know, I mentioned the harassment. It It is um, unfortunate and significant and constant. Uh, so I think that there are definite ways that Twitter, the corporation, could better protect its users in that way. I'm obviously very concerned with, uh, you know, will he or won't he <laughs> with respect to Elon Musk and buying Twitter mm-hmm. and what that's going to look like, especially since he has not proved um, to be sensitive to the needs of employees from marginalized communities. You know, there's huge lawsuit from Black employees at Tesla. Um, And my concern is that if Twitter changes significantly, if he is to buy it, what that means for the employees from traditionally underrepresented communities at Twitter. Twitter currently has different ERGs, employee resource groups, that are specifically interested in um, folks who identify as people of color, folks who identify as queer, folks who identify as disabled, and so on. Elon Musk hasn't shown that he's interested in any of those communities. And so what happens to the employees and the work that they do should he take over? April Rain, thank you so much, creator of the Oscar So White hashtag, among other viral sensations. Also an inclusion and representation consultant. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate the opportunity. So one listener, kind of following up on one of the things that April was saying about harassment, one listener tweets, I like Twitter, but when you report somebody, you never really get any closure on whether or not it happened, like whether or not action was taken. I used to get notifications saying that the counter tweet was suspended or taken down. I also haven't seen any flags on disinformation anymore. And, you know, Sarita, Shana Beck, I know that you have worked with Twitter on issues of misinformation. I wanted you to talk a little bit about what it's like working on a platform like this and also whether you think the whole paradigm of kind of like reporting and flagging and you know uh, thinking about this as kind of moderation whether you think that actually works or we need some other paradigm for thinking about how to manage these huge platforms yeah i'll focus primarily on my research and and the broader research communities um, focus on this 
And it, um, yeah, content moderation seems mostly broken. It doesn't scale and is this whole, to describe it, so basically people report um, something that they think is a problem and then it goes into the system where um, a large community of content moderators, these are workers often in other parts of the world, they tend to be underpaid, are supposed to label it and kind of say this was or was not a violation of the content. And then it comes back uh, or a violation of the guidelines and it comes back to the people who reported it as either you know was or was not a violation. And so there's no um, vision for how to scale this. So. Mm-hmm. You know, are we just going to keep hiring more and more underpaid workers to keep labeling content? And it's also built into the machine learning models, the algorithms, but it's really hard to look at content and say, yeah, that was offensive or that was not offensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of the things I think that need to happen are more transparency. And this is about giving people the information about what they did wrong, because how do we expect people to change their behavior if they don't even know why they were banned or what policy they might have violated? And also do it in a way that encourages them to say, hey, you know, this was a mistake. Can we try to do better versus just banning them with no no visibility into, into what happened? Um, I've made the argument this mirrors some of the problems of the criminal legal system where people are just kind of banned from a community mm-hmm. or society without an ability to kind of say what happened? What did I do? How, you know, how do we make this better? Um, well, and how would you actually, you know, I, I've heard you uh, use the phrase, I think, uh, that you'd like more of a justice framework um, for dealing with these kinds of, you know, I, I guess they're free speech yeah. issues. I think they're, they're content moderation issues. Kind of the word you use seems to put a different frame on it, no matter which one you use. So how, what would be, what would this kind of justice framework really look like? Sure. Uh, justice frameworks. We might think about punitive models, which is we punish people when they do something wrong versus restorative justice, which is we try to um, bring them back into the community versus putting them into, you know, in the criminal legal system. Again, this means uh, deviating or moving away from um, prison pipelines. And here we might think about, well, some people, most people make mistakes and they might cause harm. But if you say, hey, you really shouldn't have done this in a way that kind of brings them back into the conversation, they will probably stop or not try to do it again. And then there's some people, a smaller percentage, who are really the repeat offenders who are intentionally trying to cause harm. And no amount of trying to you know, communicate with them was likely to make a difference. And so differentiating how we respond to people. And so for the people who are causing the most harm, who are doing it intentionally, we can do the device level bans, IP level bans. Um, but the large community of other people, and this is especially important globally when mm-hmm. cultures and expectations about what to do online may vary heavily. Um, we should think about better ways to say, hey, this wasn't great, but let's try to change the behavior and and bring it back into the community. And, and that also means we have to define what is a community. And I don't think Twitter is a particularly great platform for just saying, hey, we're a community with responsibility to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, other maybe smaller platforms, I know Ethan thinks about this as a lot, um, are better at are better at doing that. Yeah. Let's bring in our first caller, Bob, in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Bob. Hi, thanks. This is a bit of an extended comment, but I, I and I hope you won't mind this. First, first of all, social media um, structure as a product design has been mutilated by its business model. When you reward attention in any form you can get it, you're going to get people who want to have attention, and they'll use the most effective means possible. Thus, all of the um, all of the nastiness on on Twitter. Second of all, the structure of the product actually makes a very very big difference. Let me give you an example. 
right now in Twitter, if somebody makes a comment, you can have other commenters um, troll and basically push down other people's comments. Now, you're not going to be able to, to solve everything with a, with a silver bullet. But let me give you one example of where you could. Um, right now, Twitter supports what I would argue are uh, politically privileged accounts for people who are, who are bona fide politicians. And they can say things that other people can't say. And that was obviously tre- tremendously abused. However, let's say that you made a very, very small change in the product, which is to say, let's say that if to replace the televised debates, which seem to be going away, what you do is you say, if you want to be a politically um, qualified um, account, um, you know, you have to meet certain criteria, mm-hmm. let's say polling results. And then at that point, your tweets as a qualified as a qualified candidate are pinned to the top of the uh, of the queue of responses to your uh, to any tweet made by one of your opponents. And as a result, you have a conversation between all of the candidates that can't be pushed down, that can't be ignored, and that all the participants have, without moderation, very, very strong reasons to comment on each other and to hold each other to account. Anyway, yeah, so no, Bob. It's it's a. I, I appreciate the specificity that of of that thought, and just that. I, the other thing it really opens up for me it's just this idea that you we can cha- we could change these things. The the companies that run these products could make so many different decisions than the ones that they did make, which was more or less following this kind of content mod- kind of free for all, and then bolting on a kind of content moderation apparatus over the top of it. And I think it's to me that feels very, very like that was a that was a very specific set of decisions made at a specific time. We're talking about reimagining the online public square with Sarita Shaneback, associate professor at the School of Information at the University of Michigan, Dexter Thomas, uh, postdoc at Princeton, journalist and documentary filmmaker at Vice News Tonight, He's covered Twitter for a long time, and Ethan Zuckerman, associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and director of the UMass Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure. Earlier, we were joined by Daryl Owens, policy and data analyst at California Yimby, and April Rain, a creator of Oscars, the creator of Oscars So White. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the real and existing online communities of Twitter and other places, as well as reimagining the online public square. Uh, Dexter Thomas, journalist and documentary filmmaker at Vice News Tonight, wanted to ask you uh, a kind of a a high-level question. 
know, we've been positing, and I think you know, Ethan works. Ethan Zuckerman, one of our other guests, works on this on a on a day to day basis of sort of a kind of better for you versions of social networks or you know civic infrastructure. And I think the big worry is what if these things really get created, you know, places that could work better as a public sphere, but they actually aren't as fun or don't have the same kinds of game mechanics that are built into all these social media platforms. Could we actually get people to use better for you, I'm air quoting there, better for you uh, social networks? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, there's, th- this brings me back to a book. Uh, it's from Jaron Lanier. Uh, it's called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Um, highly recommended. Um, it's a tough one because most people will not do that. Um, but, you know, he lays out some pretty compelling arguments. And essentially what he's arguing, this is this is an OG from the Internet. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. built a lot of the structure uh, of, of the things that we use today and realized something was going wrong fairly early. Um, and so the answer is, is it possible? Yes. But the road to doing that is very possibly... Um, frankly get off the internet it's people need you we that may it may involve people actually leaving some of these platforms so that the platforms are not being rewarded but for doing essentially continue to do what they're doing um so the answer is yes but it's not just it's not as simple as everybody hitting the like button on would you like this to change (laughs) it's gonna be a little bit more difficult than that Ethan, what do you think? I know you've thought about this, particularly at the local level. How would, how do you get people to use other things that you know don't have uh, the like your brain chemicals mastered in their product releases? Sure. So one of the projects we're working on at UMass <clears throat> is called Small Town. It's a social network very specific to discussions about local political issues. Um, one of the most recent conversations we had was about whether North Pleasant Street in Amherst, Massachusetts should be one way so that people have an easier time getting to the park. I often present it to people as the world's most boring social network. It's <laughs> a good sell, Ethan. I can see. <laughs> I, I, I've always been a marketing guy, Alexis. So um, one of the things that's interesting about it is that the level of participation we get is incredibly high quality. Um, People show up and they want to talk about those issues that are happening in town. And it's often people who aren't showing up for those town meetings. But the problem is exactly what you and Dexter were just talking about. How do you remember to go back there? And I think one of the things we need to start thinking about is a world in which there might be many, many more social networks, not just a Twitter and a Facebook, but a world in which we might be members of dozens of social networks. Mm-hmm. Honestly, we might be in charge of running and managing and moderating some of those social networks. Mm-hmm. And the key parts of the equation we don't have yet. We actually have some great examples of small social networks that work well for specific purposes. What we don't have is a tool that as a user allows us to manage our attention and put them towards these different platforms. When you're using Facebook or Twitter on your phone, that client on your phone is not your friend. It is loyal to the platform. It is not loyal to you. It is trying to keep you hooked. It is trying to keep you addicted. It is trying to suck as much data from you as possible. 
we need software. We need tools on our phones and on our machines that let us make the decision and say, you know what, I want to make sure that I am staying part of that local political discussion. And I actually don't mind if some of that Twitter noise gets turned down in the mix so that I can put my attention where I mean to put it in those civic-focused networks. Mm. Such an interesting point. And I'll, I'll just note that I think social networks did us all kind of a disservice when they made relevance. Again, I'm air quoting here. Sorry, that's radio. But <laughs> relevance, the, the dominant metric for what they were going to show you because they could invent what relevance meant to them. And it, it, uh, it has changed through time. And I don't think that it's actually um, a good way of thinking about uh, what should be shown next to someone for, for their brain. Um, let's bring in another caller, Yao in Fremont. Welcome to the show. Uh, hi, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so I, I have a small comment. So some of the guests earlier in the program uh, uh, commented that uh, they very much desired the original uh, traditional uh, media where they could filter, quote-unquote, filter uh, various opinions, which they deemed harmful. And uh, they lamented that the, in the new social media, uh, they, uh, lack, they lost this, uh, this means of filtering. And uh, uh, suddenly, uh, and hence, we have a lot of harmful views. Uh, this has me, I cannot, cannot help shuddering uh, at this uh, tendency and thought and uh, be very concerned, being, being very concerned about this uh, slippery slope, uh, because this uh, seems uh, eerily uh, reminiscent of uh, the Big Brother in 1984, uh, because uh, um, the the guest mentioned that uh, uh, talked about the, the the social media we uh, desired we desired but who is the we right so who is the we uh, w- when you try to uh, distance yourself as the we and uh, exclude um, other people from the definition of we then I think you are going down the mm-hmm. very dangerous liberal slope uh, mm-hmm. of becoming uh, the big brother. And yeah. uh, on re- more recent development, uh, um, uh, Elon Musk is buying Twitter uh, exactly because he thinks that uh, there is too much filtering going on. There's too much control in the in the medium for public uh, freedom of speech. And uh, yet, well, these guests are talking about uh, uh, there's not enough control, and we are mm-hmm. reimagining uh, Twitter. So this is um, really very alarming. So uh, yeah. when we talk about we, we should be looking at what is we, and uh, are you are you equating yourself to we, right? Are you equating? Uh, are you excluding people like Elon Musk from the picture? Yeah. Thanks uh, so for uh, how no, to. Yeah. No. No. Let me let me get your question to our to our guest. I I appreciate the uh, the pushback there, Sarita. You, you know, you're the one who I feel like is up against the kind of coal face of these problems the most often. How do you uh, see, you know, how, how would you respond to, to Yao and, and people who uh, like him? Yeah, thanks for your question and comments, Yao. Um, as a great point, for example, you know, most social media users are not in the U.S. Maybe 10, 10% or so, you know, across platforms are U.S. users. And yet most of the policies that are made um, and design decisions are grounded in kind of U.S. cultures and practices and, and people. And so when we talk about we, yeah, it should be you know, the rest of the world um, as well, um, the majority of the world, really. That's one way to rethink, well, who, who are we designing for? Um, so my view would be that we need some 
fundamental principles that are should be in you know most or all of if I had my way platforms and these are based on human rights and civil rights principles and so something like gender-based violence is a global problem of course it should also it it's experienced online and we need to develop policies that address that and respond to it um but we also are going to have variants in how people feel about these things and so I think having these smaller platforms as Ethan talked about that allow for some um, individual communities to have the kind of commitments and priorities they care about. And one way to do this, we haven't really talked about regulation much, but you know, it's gotta be part of the discussion is, well, who owns these platforms? And um, we need more maybe public interest platforms. That's a big discussion right now, which is not just owned by companies, but also by communities, by people, by citizens, where they can kind of instantiate some of their own values. Um, because there isn't a collective we, and this also means locally in, in countries around the world, not just we in the U.S. Yeah. Some great listener comments here responding both directly and indirectly to the things that, that we've been saying. Uh, John tweets, I'm concerned that Elon Musk will destroy the Twitter network I have by scaring off professionals I follow. But as long as I can, I will use Twitter to reach out to my colleagues, try to inspire my students and promote civil discourse. Thanks for your contribution to civility. Another listener writes, much of the discourse around Twitter and other social media comes down to limits on hate speech. I feel that hate speech is meant to stop other speech, and the quick spread of lies shows how social media is a publishing medium as much as a public square. Slander and hate speech have always been a challenge to the public square, but what's really the ideal? And I think, Sarita, I'm going to throw this question um, back to you, and I think one of the one of the questions that's sort of embedded in it is whether our notions of, of free speech need to change when they move into the online realm where maybe it's easier to dogpile people or send hundreds of people sending hate speech at someone, which would be quite difficult in the real world. Yeah, speech is really tricky. It's um, I follow a lot of the internet law, um, First Amendment scholars, and um, that may be a third rail for the rest of us who are not those scholars. But um, I think it's important so I'm going to slightly sidestep that part of it, but the, it's important to remember that you know social media is not a blank slate any more than any community offline is. We can look at our local schools, for example, like we started you know talking about in Texas. Um, they all have policies and values that shape people's experiences, and the same thing happens online. And so one example that I, I like is, and this builds off April's earlier comments, is this website BlackPlanet.com, which was started by Omar Wasau in you know 1999, and the very first instantiation of that platform in 1999, they had a community guideline about don't be racist. Um, and they still have it today in various forms, whereas Facebook was started in 2004 and they didn't have that because who starts the platform is going to shape what they might be thinking about and what the policies are. So, you know, free speech is a, is a, at the government level, but the platforms, they can make their decisions around what values they want to have and to enforce. Thanks so much for that. Let's bring in Noah from San Jose. Welcome, Noah. Hi. Um, I had a question. Is there any platform that can help build community in a city like San Jose? Because it's very large, and you really don't each know your neighbors like, say, maybe Modesto, where you are more familiar with the people down the street. And I feel it sounds like such a huge you know, conglomerate of people, but there's a huge disconnect. And... Social media for San Jose is just crazy. It's not really about building community. It's just more about what's popular. So does anybody know any good way to communicate and to 
know, be a part of a community that's trying to, you know, promote change in a positive way in such a huge city like San Jose? Yeah. No, that's a that's a great question. Um, I guess, Ethan, you know, you may be the one who's most familiar with the, the most examples of this kind of thing, but maybe not for San Jose. Well, I'll, I'll give an example of a model that could work for San Jose. Uh, it's called Front Porch Forum. It is um, the notion of community email lists. It started out in Burlington, Vermont. <laughs> it's now a project uh, that exists in more or less every community within Vermont. It actually re- reaches about 70% of Vermont households. And these lists are trying to cover communities of about five to 10,000 people. They are a once-a-day email. They are heavily moderated. Uh, and they're alarmingly pleasant. They're really focused on people trying to help each other out. Um, so it's often, you know, along the lines of, hey, I found someone's lost dog. Does anyone need help with it? It tends not to veer into some of the really nasty racist spaces that we've seen on things like Nextdoor. What's interesting about it is that it is a commercial business, but it's a very small-scale commercial business supported by local advertising. Uh, The founder of it, Michael Wood Lewis, has sort of invited anyone else to take the idea and try it in different communities. And one possibility would be to try to echo what Michael did in his own community, which is basically put flyers around in his neighborhood and get people to sign up for that local email list. (laughs) Now, that's a lousy answer to give to Noah that he should create his own social network. But it is sort of an example of the fact that social networks can work in very, very different ways. And that part of what we need to do is get used to this idea that it's not just Twitter and Facebook. We could actually build lots of different spaces that work on very different rules. Such a good point. Uh, Let's bring in Kobe from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I think some of the listeners and, and callers have alluded to already, but um, you know, I think one of the biggest issues we have social media, not just for Twitter, but Instagram, Facebook, is that we tend to conflate popularity, you know, with truth. Um, you know, the tweets that have the most likes, that have the most um, retweets are often promoted to the top, you know, based on the algorithm um, for of these various social media sites. And I think me personally, I would love to see better transparency on how individual people actually react to certain tweets. Uh, I think one possible way to achieve this is, um, if we take the, the example of Twitter, is um, they could show like an active ticker counter for how many people like the tweet and how many people dislike the tweet. So, for example, a tweet could have gotten, let's say, 5,000 likes, but maybe 3,500 dislikes. And I think that really makes people pause and realize, hey, you know, maybe there's more to this issue, especially if it's a political tweet, that, you know, maybe there's another side to this that other people are, you know, considering that Mm -hmm. I'm not considering instead of just taking the most popular tweet as something that is is truth or or is the kind of, you know, the town square opinion that that most people have. So I think, yeah, again, you know, I think these are all decisions that these companies can make, but I think it's up to the users to to demand these kind of, you know, little features that promote better transparency. Thank you for that, Kobe. I mean, I think one reason why they've relied on popularity rather than truth, it's a lot easier to measure popularity for a machine than it is to measure the truth value of a statement. You know, Dexter, I wanted to give you the, the last word here. You know, in our real and existing social media, the stuff that we have now and are all working with and, and talking through. 
What do you think is going to happen to Twitter now that the specter of Elon Musk buying and perhaps quite radically changing the platform is in play? <laughs> I mean, it's a great question, right? And I think the the thing that perhaps this the, the company having a new owner um, is perhaps a curveball in something that, frankly, I think was sort of already happening for me. And I think for a lot of people, Twitter is kind of stagnant. Um you know, you see kind of the professional managerial class on there and there's all, you know, there's th- those sorts of, you know, quote unquote, important people uh, with power. But I think a lot of the creativity has left Twitter mm. um, long ago. Right. And and I think a lot of that has moved on to to Instagram, TikTok, which is yeah. a lot of places. Are, yeah. TikTok. Absolutely. Right. Uh, with all the problems that exist on both of those platforms. But but that's to say that, uh, you know, going back to what I was talking about with the metagame. Right. Is what game developers do when they figure out that there's a bunch of guys crouching in the corner, throwing fireballs and ruining the game for everybody else is they have an incentive to make the game better because they know that people will leave. And so nowadays game, it's possible to, you know, update the game. The games are always updated. And so they'll change the game. They'll make modifications with all of the things that people have been talking about today. Um, some of the really great points on, you know, moderation and, you know, perhaps, you know, dislike button, which, you know, that exists on, on Reddit. Yeah, so I don't know how much that might work. But but all these other ideas, these are things that could be changed. Um, game developers change the game. Twitter hasn't really. Mm-hmm. I kind of look at Twitter as a really bad video game. <laughs> broken. I don't want to play yeah. anymore. <laughs> right. And a lot of people, it's a broken video game. A lot of us don't want to play anymore. And so people are leaving. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see... If Elon Musk really thinks he can make people want to play his game anymore, um, you know, play the game again, I'm not sure. We've been talking about reimagining the online public square with Dexter Thomas, journalist, documentary filmmaker at Vice News Tonight. Sarita Shanebeck, associate professor at the School of Information at the University of Michigan. And Ethan Zuckerman, associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and director of the UMass Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure. If you're interested in this topic, look up some of uh, Ethan's work on digital public infrastructure. Thanks to all three of you for joining us. Wanted to get in one last comment. Todd writes, the whole point of representative democracy is efficiency, whereby we elect competent people to represent us, to gather together to solve problems. We should not be paying these people to tweet or loiter on Facebook. It's entertainment at best. Communications to our representatives should be government-funded, civil, and downright boring. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another Hour Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity.
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.